morning, guys. Hey, it's the last week of the series. We did it. The world, no, the sermon series. It's the last week of the world sermon series. So thanks for worshiping with us today. Uh, we've been for the last month and a half going through our series, Becoming Like Jesus. We're going to be in Philippians 2. Today we've been... Studying sanctification, and let me give us a quick recap of the weeks before this one. How many of you have been here for every week of the series? Me too. Great. Hey, in week one, we looked at the goal of sanctification, which is God conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. God wants to rescue us, and he wants to make us like him. Week two, we saw the three we saw incentives of sanctifications. Remember, the promises, the tools that God gives us in the gospel as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. In week four, we saw the enemy of sanctification and the power that God gives to help us withstand the schemes we face. Last week, we saw the teamwork of sanctification. We're in this together, moving toward joy in Jesus. And today, we finish the series by meditating on the hero of sanctification. We're going to look at how looking at Jesus makes us like him. He is the hero of our sanctification. Not, listen, if we were doing a series on justification, he would be the hero. And you would be a lot more, it would be a lot more natural to you to think that way. In a series on sanctification, Jesus is also the hero. So I'm going to start out with a series of questions that could lead to some controversy. First, what does the goat mean? Crushed it. You guys are ready. Oh, thank you. It's going to be such a good day. This is such a beautiful passage. The goat means the greatest of all time. And the goat and identifying the goat and proclaiming the goat is something that primarily seems to happen in sports, but it can happen in any area, in any discipline. But we'll start in sports. Who do you think is the GOAT of basketball? Great. I love that there's multiple answers. I've got one for you. I've got one that'll help you. So Michael Jordan is the great. So it depends on your definition of greatest. What, what do you mean by greatest? When you're t- greatest basket, greatest in basketball, Michael Jordan is probably the greatest basketball player who has ever lived. Bill Russell is the greatest basketball champion that's ever lived. LeBron James probably has the greatest career, right? Who's the goat of football? I have no idea on this one. I don't... <laughs> I'm way more into basketball, but I don't have an opinion, so whatever y'all just said is all equally correct. Hey, who's the goat of pop music? Those are two on my list. Those are two on my I said, I, so I put down, is it Elvis? Is it the Beatles? Is it Michael Jackson? He's on my list. Or is it, in fact, Taylor Swift? I don't know. I'm just putting out some options. I'm just putting out some options. Hey. Who's the goat of preaching? <laughs> Serious answers only. Rough. <laughs> hey, he, he listens to most of our sermons, so I'm going to say it into the mic. 
Rob, someone just said Rob Timms is the greatest <laughs> of preaching. Charles Spurgeon is often considered the greatest. He's called the Prince of Preachers. I would, I would submit Tim Keller and Tony Evans for names in that conversation. Listen, we love pair greatness, but there is one, is there not, whose greatness is incomparable. The greatest of all time, and hopefully this is an easy question. Who is the greatest of all time? Jesus is the great of all greats. Isn't helpful for us in seeing Jesus' greatness in the mundane. Here's what I mean. It's so important for us to recognize Jesus' greatness in the low places. For example, Jesus is the goat of obedience. That's probably not something that's debated all that frequently. But man, it's out of work. That won't be on ESPN tonight. But that reality is one of the ways that he changes and transforms us into, our, into his image. So what we're going to do for a few minutes is we're going to look at one of the most famous Christologies in the Bible. And we're going to meditate on our hero. So that fixing our heart on him can help us become more like him and help us experience the joy that he died, the fullness that he wants us to have and that he created us to have. So let's look together at our hero, finishing up this series, the greatest of all time, and see the ways that seeing him helps us to be like him. Let's begin reading in Philippians 2, verse 5. We're going to read through verse 13. Beautiful passage. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is of the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you... Hey, I'm saying this to you with Paul right now. Just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. This is the word of the Lord. And what a word. We were always going to end here in this series. Paul writes, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So we're going to consider the attitude of Jesus, his posture. We're going to meditate through this passage on our hero and ask the Lord to make his attitude our attitude. We want seeing him to make us more like him. And the first thing for us to see is this. Jesus is the most humble of all time. Is the greatest of all time in humility. And his humility can birth in us and grow in us a sweet and powerful humility of our own. Look at the first two and a half verses of this passage that we just read again. I want you to see them again. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Guys, there has never been anything like what we see in these verses, and there never will be again. Simply put, Jesus is God and became a human being. And there has never been greater humility than that. The phrase, existing in the form of God, means he possessed the nature of God for all eternity then. So before the incarnation, when Jesus came to earth to dwell among us, to live perfectly, to die in our place, to restore back to out of the universe. John 1 tells us, in the beginning, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus is the eternal God of the universe. But the text says he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. What does that mean? There are several things that we can surmise from this phrase, but because the context is the humility that Christ showed, we know that this means before Jesus came to earth, he was already equal with God, but he chose temporarily not to cling to that. God the Son chose to submit to God the Father and surrender his heavenly glory to become like one of his own created beings. We can't, even, we can't even fully understand humility like that. We can't fully grasp what it means to be God, to be absolutely holy, to be pristinely, uniquely set apart from all things in power, in glory, in beauty, in superiority. So we can never know what it's really like for Jesus not to cling to that. But the text goes on to say that Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of his eternity past status. Now, Jesus, of course, didn't empty himself of his godness. He was still God. He was the God man. If he wasn't still God, if he'd emptied himself of his godness, then his sacrifice wouldn't save. So he was still God, but he no longer took the form of God. And instead, what did he do? He took on flesh like what I have right now, which I mean, that's absurd. Like that's absurd. We don't, this is, we talked in our Sunday school class. There's so many things that we can, that we can gloss over. That's absurd. I mean, I, I know we think our skin is great and it is pretty incredible, but it's not God. Our bodies don't have the strength of God. They get injured. Our bodies don't have the perfect decay. Our bodies don't have the glory of God. They're just human bodies. There have been billions of them. As amazing as the human body is on this earth, Jesus is not of this earth. Remember in week two, when we were discussing our obedience before God and we looked at Isaiah's encounter with God on the th- throne, the power center of the universe, power center of the universe, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple, God's glory in that scene, in his natural habitat, so to speak, has the whole place shaking. There's angels, remember, who are covering their faces as they fly around and shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The the whole earth is filled with his glory. First Timothy says he dwells in unapproachable light. It's the most singular beauty, the most singular glory possible. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus 
emptied himself of that so that Isaiah could write in Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. This is God. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in lowest in low esteem how staggering is the humiliation of the son of god angels hid their faces for eternity because of the weight of his glory and then people hid their faces because he was so despised the greatest humility of all time my oldest daughter is 12 years old she is so sweet and so beautiful. She's so human, made in the image of God. What would it be like if she took the form of a cockroach? That's an uncomfortable question. It's kind of offensive. What if you were asked to take the form of a roach or a spider or a worm? It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. My daughter is so much more valuable than a bug. You are so much more worthy than a spider. You're so much more beautiful than a worm. How could this be? And yet, as we read this text, what our hearts must acknowledge is that God is infinitely valuable and infinitely worthy and infinitely beautiful. He emptied himself to take on human flesh He's infinite, which means that the gap between God and humanity is immeasurably wider than the gap between humanity and cockroachness. And Jesus was willing to be clothed like us, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the most humble of all time. And gazing, what Paul is saying is gazing at Jesus' stunning humility, his beautiful condescension births humility in our lives. At some point this week, you're going to be doing something. And your mind is going to think, I'm too good for this. And it's not true. Remember, it can't be true. You're going to be making snacks for your kids in the middle of a hard day. Or you're going to be in a meeting at work, but it's not the meeting you think you should be in at work. Or you're going to be setting up chairs and dividers for Sunday school class. And your pride is going to strain within you. I'm the same attitude as that of the God of the universe who took on flesh to dwell among us, Jesus Christ, who existing as the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity for you. Jesus is the most humble of all time. And his humility humbles us. His humility helps us. You can't read Isaiah 53 or Philippians 2 and believe that your life is beneath you. Jesus' example actually helps us live in the joy that he created us to have 
because he didn't just empty himself of the form of God. He didn't just take on the body of a frail, lowly man, but then he let us kill him, didn't he? (laughs) That's what happened to the hero of our sanctification. Jesus isn't just the most humble of all time. He's the most obedient of all time. Jesus is the most obedient of all time. Pick up with me reading in the second half of verse 7. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Thank you, Lord. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, the eternally glorious God of the universe, took on flesh lived a life of suffering, knowing, knowing that it was going to end in torture and brutal death on the cross, and he kept going. Jesus kept obeying. Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross, and he stayed there till the job was done. There's never been an obedience like that. God the Son obeyed God the Father to the death. Christian, can you remember that the Lord of all stayed on the cross? You can stay in your marriage. Jesus remained on the cross. You can remain in your suffering. Jesus continued in obedience as the man of sorrows. You can continue in obedience, pushing against whatever it is, pushing against your greed, pushing against your selfishness, pushing against your fearfulness, whatever it is. You can stand against your old nature because your hero stood against death. Paul is saying that Jesus' obedience to God births in us obedience to God. I've never really been a runner. I don't understand runners. But I was a pretty committed basketball player. I said committed, not good, which meant I was in pretty good shape a long time ago. And I was talking to some friends from basketball running, and I was like, guys, there's a lot of running in basketball. And and they said, sure, but you couldn't just wake up tomorrow and run 10K. And I said, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and run 10K. (laughs) So I figured out what six miles would be around where I lived. And for about five miles, I thought those guys were dumb. Then for the last mile, I thought I was going to die. And I'm only slightly exaggerating. I've never run that long since or before. The last mile, it felt like my heart was going to stop. And during that last mile, as a non-runner, I kept thinking about, we've all got several friends who have run marathons, and they all say the same thing. The hardest part about a marathon is mile 20, mile 21. It's it's when you're starting the last 10K. It's at that point, you have to run 10K when you've already run 20 miles. It's unfathomable unfathomable for me, a now-retired former basketball player. The hardest part about a marathon is not the first 10K, it's the last 10K. So I just kept thinking. Those guys can run the last 10K, I can run the first 10K. Nobody's asking me to run the last 10K, I'll run the first 10K. That's how our obedience works. 
when we think about Jesus, when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And I want to read a similar passage to Philippians 2, Hebrews 12, so that you can see this is actually the Holy Spirit's analogy, not mine. Hebrews 12 says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on who? The pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy that laid before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Jesus ran the last 10K in struggling against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How amazing. Run with endurance, Christian, the race set before you, knowing that Jesus already ran the last 10K. Run remembering that Jesus endured the cross, that he despised the shame, that he perfected our faith. God says we run looking at Jesus. God's not asking you to accomplish what Jesus has accomplished because Jesus has already accomplished it. He's just, God is just telling you, keep moving one foot in front of the other, one degree of glory to another as he transforms you into the image of Christ. Jesus ran the race we couldn't run, but looking at him motivates us forward. And what a beautiful feeling against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do you know who did? Luke 22, Jesus took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Hebrews 13, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Jesus has. We have not run the last 10K. Jesus did. We have not defeated sin. Jesus did. And his obedience to do that births our obedience. The most humble of all time enables our humility. The most obedient of all time spurs us on to obedience. But let's see a third facet of Jesus in this Christology. It's also good for our hearts to know that Jesus is the most exalted of all time. That's a good thing to know, especially after what Paul's just told us. Keep reading in verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what's happening here is that we get to remember that Jesus didn't just empty himself of his glory for our sakes, but he took it back. And he has it right now. Looking unto Jesus reminds us that Jesus is the Lord, the decider of all things. As we've said, as we've learned, he's the possessor and disposer of all things. He is the power. He is the glory. Everyone will recognize that someday. We get to recognize that right now and live in it. He humbled himself, obedient unto death. He emptied himself to become like one of us. But after his victory, he reclaimed what is his. And that is what he sits in right now. That is what Jesus operates in right now. Think about that. Think about that. The one who condescended for you, the one who died for you, is the universal king. 
That means Jesus is exalted above all kings, all presidents, all problems, all pains. The hero who suffered humiliation and death because of how much he loves us is the most exalted of all time. Like if my dad became president tomorrow, I would start to think a lot of things were going to go well for me. That changes everything about how we live. Jesus is the most exalted of all time. And that reminds us of the last truth that we're going to see. I did that one real quick because I wanted the first two to be long. Forgive me. The last thing for us to remember this morning in light of all that, the to make it personal, the greatest of all time works in me. The greatest of all time is the one who works for your sanctification. Read this with me, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his purpose. This is so beautiful. This is the essence of sanctification. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is working. Hey, Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be very clear, though. God didn't say work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. You don't earn anything. You live from what Jesus has already earned. Jesus obeyed for your salvation. We obey in our salvation. And with fear and trembling, it's the most important thing in the world. Being conformed into the glorious image of the Son to enjoy God forever. That is the chief end of man, as we've seen. It is our goal. It is our purpose. Work out your salvation. Work from your salvation. Work because of your salvation with urgency and with serious seriousness. But don't miss the next verse. Do it knowing that it is God who is working in you both to will and to work in you for his good purpose. Son or daughter, the greatest of all time is the one who is working in you to make you like him. We said this last week or two weeks ago. Our working is his working. Dewey, can you come help me? Thank you, beauty. Every morning for years now, this is Dewey. You can't really see her behind the podium. We'll fix that. Uh, we, every, every, uh, every day for years, I'm, I'm sure we've missed one. Dewey or I have made Scarlet coffee in bed. To be clear, that is not something she demanded. <laughs> it's just something I started doing when, in 2020 when I found myself at home every day. And we've kept doing it, and at some point, Dewey wanted to start doing it. So many times when she was younger, we made coffee together. And hey, little love. Oh, my gosh. We started when she was four. We started doing this when she was four. So we're going to make some coffee right now. Dewey. Now, you've got to imagine her as a four-year-old. It's actually better when she's four, but she's still... Dewey's going to make mommy some coffee. So what we like to do, you ready? 
So what we like to do is put a little whipped cream in the bottom. We have a way. Here you go, view. Put it all the way down. There you go. All right. Now, can you reach the pod? Can you try? There we go. Yeah, you got it. Now we'll close the thing. Now, I, t I got to teach her to push the eight, not the six, <laughs> not the ten. Here we go. Let's push the eight. So, we got, now we got to get our cinnamon ready. So we have our cinnamon. Great, we got it. There it is. Um, what we like to do at the end is we're going to give it a good stir. We're going to put some whipped cream on top. Got to do it. Little dust of cinnamon. That's the key. Sometimes when I'm not in a hurry, I'll stir a little cinnamon in the bottom. But I'm doing this in front of people, so we skip that step. So here's the question. Is Dewey making coffee? Dewey's making coffee. Is Daddy making coffee? So silly, it's coffee. And then you know what we do. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> okay, you gotta stop now. I'm just gonna let the rest drip. Okay, let's give it a stir, beauty. Here, it's gonna be fine. Stir it up real good. Okay, here, I want you to get a scoop. There you go. Sloop it on top there. Yeah. Let's give it a dusting. Here. And when she was really little, she couldn't even carry the coffee without spilling it. <laughs> Remember? So we would go to mommy's bedroom. <laughs> you coffee! <laughs> Dewey made you coffee! <laughs> Our working is his working. That's how it works for sons and daughters of God as he conforms us into the image of Christ. As we work, we know that he is the one working. Do you know how powerful it is when you face temptation to sin, whatever it is in your life, when you remember it's God who is working? <laughs> in that moment where he provides you a way to escape, it often sounds like this. Brandon, push the eight. Let's push the eight. God is holding your hand to push the button. He is telling you to push. Do you know how powerful it is when you face suffering? To remember that the greatest of all time, the exalted Lord of the universe, is working in you both to will and to work his good purpose. We say, God, it hurts so much. And then God says, I know, I remember. Remember, I remember. And you have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood. I did that for, I did that for you. You have not yet been obedient to death. I'm here with you, God says, son or daughter. I'm here working with you. Hey, just keep stirring. Keep stirring. As I am stirring, I'm stirring your stirring. The coffee's almost ready. 
Jesus is the most humble of all time. He's the most obedient of all time. He's the most exalted of all time. And he is our hero. He is the one who shows us the way and he you into the image of Christ. He wants to complete your joy right now and forever. Restoring in you what, what you've lost. And he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, the most humble of all time, the most obedient of all time, now the most exalted of all time who is working in you to will and to work. We're going to pray in a moment. We're going to take communion. We're going to remember that he did not stop short of blood. Before we do, we'll, we'll sing next, right? We'll, we'll sing, we'll worship, we'll pray. I want to invite you forward for prayer if there is temptation that you are facing or there is suffering that you are in and you want somebody to help you remember that Jesus is the one working in you, we will stand with you and let me close by reading this to you. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up in struggling against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus, we say thank you. You are our hero. You are the greatest thing that has ever happened to us. You did resist all the way to spilling your blood to make us holy, to cover our sins, to bring us into fellowship with our Father who made us for our joy. And we say thank you. God, we say thank you. And I pray that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is you who is working in us, both to will and to work according to your good purpose. God, would you help us to live humbly, to live obedient, to live hopefully, to live expectantly, to live in your power. God, I pray if there's anybody in here right now who does not have a relationship with you through Jesus, God, would you call them to yourself? Would you help them to know they will never resist enough on their own? That you ran the race they couldn't run. I pray that, that you would help them to trust your work. And I pray that you would help us to worship you now. In the name of Christ, amen.